we cannot understand the depth of our salvation until we've understood the depth of our sin. That's what Ash Wednesday is about. And maybe let's begin by looking at just the first verse of Jesus' first sermon that he ever preached. Mark chapter 1, we read uh, what I can see is the very first words Jesus spoke in his public ministry, where we read that Jesus went into Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. It's interesting that Jesus said, repent, long before he said, come to me, all you who are weary, and I will give you rest. And it's so interesting that we've made a bookmark out of the second verse and not out of the first verse, which says a lot more about us than it says about Jesus. To repent means really to change one's mind, among other things. Um, The word is uh, metanoia, meta from the word metamorphosis, change, and noia referring to our mind. So it's it's a change of mind with regard to our sin. Now, I think the word sin is practically dropped out of our vocabulary. When was the last time you heard someone speak about sin at a dinner party or around the braai or on television? In fact, I do remember once sharing the word sin at a braai. It was so interesting. We were braaiing a piece of chicken, and this guy was telling me how brilliant this chicken was. He said, it's so good, it's sinful. Uh, How chicken can be sinful, I'm, I'm not sure. But that's the way the world thinks about sin. It's simply a bit of naughtiness on the side. Another problem is that many of us don't feel that we're actually sinners. I remember reading one writer who put it this way. She said, we know what really wicked people are like. We see them in the newspaper every day, and we're not like that. God must find us in comparison, quite endearing. (laughs) I remember years ago they did a study in America, and they asked people to say who they thought would make it into heaven. They gave them a list of people and said, do you think this one will be in heaven? Do you think this one will be? And the results were quite interesting. Mother Teresa got 79% of the vote. 79% of the people thought Mother Teresa would get into heaven, which means the standards are pretty high if she only got 79%. Uh, Oprah Winfrey was next with 66% of the vote. Uh, Michael Jordan, I think he's a basketball player, uh, 65% of the votes. Uh, Colin Powell, who I think was Defense Secretary in those days, got 61%. Princess Diana got 60%, which meant this was an American survey, not a British survey. Even Bill Clinton got 52%. But there was one person who did better even than Mother Teresa. This person got 87% of the vote. Do you know who it was? It was the person taking the survey. After they'd gone through everybody else, they said, what about you? Do you think you'll get into heaven? And 87% of the people thought they would get into heaven. Only 79% thought Mother Teresa would get into heaven, but 87% thought that they would get into heaven, walk right past Mother Teresa and go in. We all think that we're better than others. One polling expert said, it's the great contradiction. The average person believes they are a better person than the average person. But the Bible is a mirror that tells us the truth about ourselves. I might say to myself, I'm better than Hitler, I'm better than Robert Mugabe, I'm better than my neighbor, I'm better than you. The Bible says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. (laughs) Nobody makes it then. 
The Bible puts it in two ways. First of all, the Bible refers to us as being sinners. Not just that we commit sin, but we have this natural inclination or bent towards evil. And if you've got small children, you know about this. You don't have to teach small children to be naughty. I've got a friend who one morning was uh, shaving, and his son was watching him, and uh, this man put his razor down, and he said to his son, don't touch that, it's sharp. And about a few hours later, he heard his little boy running down the corridor, screaming, and uh, he had blood dripping from his chin, and my friend said to him, what happened, what happened? And he said, I, I fell, I tripped and I fell. Friend picked him up, dabbed his chin, saw that there was a double-edged cut, <laughs> the kind that you would get from a double-edged razor. And he says, it's amazing. He never sat his son down and said, son, if you're ever in trouble, just lie. Get out of it. We don't teach our kids to be naughty. It comes naturally. Or maybe they just copy us. <laughs> All of us are a little bit like a, a bowling ball. You know, those bowls you use for lawn bowling, not ten-pin bowling. Those balls are weighted on one side, and they go straight for a while, and then they curve to the one side. And we're like that. Each one of us have a bent towards evil. Each one of us have gone our own way. Not only are we sinners, the Bible says, but we also commit acts of sin. Uh, I appreciated that confession that we used earlier, if appreciate is the right word, because none of us could really escape from that, could we, or wriggle out of it, if we're really honest. Uh, Arthur McMinn has written a whole book on the subject of sin. At one point he says this, and I quote him, because it's easier to talk about his sin than it's easier to talk about my own. He says, we're sorely tempted to deny our complicity and blame others for messing up the world. I do sometimes. I'm usually nice to my students, treat my colleagues fairly, deeply love those in my family, pay my taxes, provide psychological help to pastors in crisis, go to church and tithe. I don't steal, commit adultery, use illegal drugs or swear, and I floss regularly. When I was younger, I would gladly sing Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound, and then remain uncomfortably silent for the next six words. I was no wretch, that was for sure. But when I look at myself honestly, I see my sin. I micromanage. I consume more than my share of resources and harbor bitterness from past losses. I hoard my time and resent others for intruding on it. I'm vain and consumed with how others perceive me. I wrestle with my sexuality and have strayed away from Lisa, my wife, with my eyes and my heart. I've learned how to pretend to listen without really listening. I think more about being great than about being good. I act more spiritual than I am. I am a mess, broken in every way, and my only hope is in God's mercy. The Apostle John tells us that if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But I think there's something also very important to understand about sin, and that is that sin isn't about broken rules primarily, but rather it's about a broken relationship. So in the book of Genesis, we read that the Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth, and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. The Lord regretted that he'd made human beings on the earth, and his heart was filled with pain. Sin is about a broken relationship. 
And that's very important, because if we think of sin as just breaking a rule, that makes God to me to be a rule maker, a lawmaker, a judge, a prosecuting attorney. But sin is about a broken relationship with a father, with a friend, someone who loves us. Don Miller writes in one of his books, um, he says, I have a friend who overheard his wife on the phone with another man. And she didn't know he was in the house, and he walked up behind her, leaned against the doorframe to hear her confess her love and enjoyment of the other man's touch. My friend drove around Baltimore in a daze. He went into coffee shops and sat with his head in his hands. He went to a bus station and bought a ticket to Pittsburgh, but never made it, missed the bus, sick from smoking a pack of cigarettes. He spent an hour in the bathroom, vomiting into a filthy toilet. Our systematic theology reduces the fall of man to a technical act of betrayal. We hardly think of it as relational at all. But I think this view distorts what actually happened. I think God must have felt like my friend in Baltimore. I think it was something terribly painful for God to endure. I don't think we can understand the pain a pure love would feel after being betrayed by the focus of its love. You see, we never, we never will overcome sin in our lives if we think of it only as breaking a rule. We'll, we will, though, begin to deal with sin when we realize it breaks God's heart. So Stephen Charnock was a British pastor who lived in London in the 1600s, and he spoke about the difference between taking your sin to Mount Sinai, where you see sin as a broken law, and you feel upset about the consequences, and on the other hand, taking your sin to the cross, where you see the effect it had on God. And let me read to you what he said. He said, a legally convinced person cries out, I have exasperated a power that is as the roaring of a lion. I have provoked one that is the sovereign Lord of heaven and earth, whose word can tear up the foundation of the world. But an evangelically convinced person cries I've incensed the goodness that is like the dropping of a dew. I've offended a God that had his hand stretched out to me as a friend. My heart must be made of marble. My heart must be made of iron to throw his blood in his face. We are sinners who sin. And it's only when we understand that we, that we can get help. Denial doesn't help us. I read recently where a man said, I've got a wonderful doctor. If you can't afford the operation, he'll touch up the x-rays. <laughs> and that's what we're tempted to do this evening, to deny, to get out of here, to find some place where we'll be told that actually we're very nice people and good people, and all we need is a bit more money and a bit more time, or that people should be more understanding and kind to us. But that doesn't solve the root problem. It's only when we admit, admit our condition that God can work in us. Barbara Brown Taylor writes this in one of her books. Sin is our only hope because the recognition that something is wrong is the first step towards setting it right again. And so the very best thing we can do is agree with Isaiah and Peter and Paul. Woe to me, I'm a man or a woman of unclean lips. Go away from me, Lord. I'm a sinful man. I know that nothing good lives in me, as Paul says. When I do that, it leads to healing 
and salvation. It drives me to godly repentance, which Paul speaks about in 2 Corinthians 7. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. Godly sorrow leads not to despair, but to joy. The more we see the depth of our sin, the more we realize the height of God's love. The full impact of forgiveness can't be felt apart from the full impact of what has been forgiven. I think there's one lady in the Bible who really understood this, and Luke tells us about her, and we'll, we'll finish with this. Uh, Luke tells us that one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him. So he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. When a woman who'd lived a sinful life in that town learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, she bought an alabaster jar of perfume, and as she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who'd invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of a woman she is, that she's a sinner. And Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two men owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he canceled the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt cancelled. You've judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You didn't give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You didn't give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You didn't put oil on my head, but she's poured perfume on my feet. And therefore I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, for she loved much. But he who has been forgiven little loves little. So Martin Lloyd-Jones used the following illustration. He said, imagine you go away on holiday, and when you get back, your friend who's been house-sitting says to you, oh, while you were away, a, a bill came, and I paid it for you. You wouldn't know how to respond. You wouldn't know how happy to be until you found out the size of the bill. Or was it just some extra postage, a few rands? Or was it perhaps a speeding fine, a few hundred rands? Or did your friend settle your bond, hundreds of thousands of rands? Until you know the size of the debt, you don't know whether to shake his hand and say thank you or to fall at his feet and kiss them. Looking at our sin enables us to see that Jesus paid a massive debt for us. And when we do so, we love more. Was Simon forgiven little? Not a chance. But he thought he'd been forgiven little. When we understand how much we've been forgiven, then we will love, as indeed we truly should. I heard about a man who was in court. He was on a charge of robbery. And when it came time for him to enter his plea, he said to the judge, I am innocent, Your Honor. The trial went on for the rest of the day. And near the end of the day, when the court was about to recess, the man said to the judge, Your Honor, I'd like to change my plea. I'm guilty. 
And the judge said to him, how can you change your plea? This morning you said you were innocent. And the man replied, but that was before I heard the evidence against me. And my prayer tonight is that during this service, we'll have had a sense of the evidence against us, that we'll have felt something of the awfulness of our sin, but that it wouldn't drive us to despair, but rather drive us to God, to experience his forgiveness afresh, to hear his commission to go and bring his forgiveness to the world, and to allow that to change us, that we'd love others with the same love that we've received from God.